Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the AirPod, a slightly later episode than originally planned, but with very good reason. So thank you for sticking around. There have been two stories that have dominated the royal headlines this past week. Of course, Prince Harry and Oprah Winfrey finally launching that much-awaited docu-series on Apple TV, The Me You Can't See. Everyone is talking about it. Millions have already streamed it around the world and we'll be breaking down some of the biggest lines from within the show and more importantly hearing from Harry and Oprah themselves who sat down exclusively with ABC News earlier this week to talk about how the show came together and what the purpose of it is really about. You may have caught some of that on Good Morning America but we have an extended listen to that chat with Robin Roberts on the show so stick around. We'll also of course be breaking down the huge inquiry, the Dyson reports. It is finally out in the public domain. We have heard the results. That third-party investigation getting to the bottom, finally, after 25 years, into how Princess Diana was deceitfully coerced into agreeing to that bombshell 1995 interview with BBC's Panorama show. All of the details coming up on that. In fact, I sat down with two experts to really break down what is an extensive report. We, of course, also heard from Princes William and Harry reacting to that report. So do stick around. Now, before we get to any of that, the Queen carried out her first solo royal duty on Saturday. That's when we are recording this, slightly later this week. She visited Portsmouth in England to be welcomed on board the Royal Navy's flagship HMS Queen Elizabeth. It's a $5 billion warship that is headed off to Asia later today. This was, of course, the first time that we saw her out by herself, unaccompanied since the death of her beloved husband. And, you know, despite all of the speculation, and I even speculated this myself, many of us thought that, and we even heard from the palace, that she'd be accompanied by other senior members of the royal family as she sort of headed back into work. But this was a real show of strength seeing her on her own. Of course, she was uh, greeted by the ship's commanding officers and other individuals upon arrival. But she was all smiles in the pictures. And, you know, I think for the Queen to sort of be heading back to work, it's that sort of keep calm and carry on spirit that we know the royal family is famous for. Now, of course, all eyes were on the Queen during this visit because, of course, this comes just a f- couple of days after Prince Harry's mental health documentary series with Oprah Winfrey was finally released. All five episodes of The Me You Can't See on Apple TV+, Plus, finally revealing what it was that Oprah and Harry had worked on, pulling together some incredible stories of triumph over tragedy, of some of the world's best-known public figures, including Lady Gaga, as well as some of the finest names 
in sports. But of course, throughout those five episodes, much of the focus was also on Prince Harry's own mental health journey, where he not only spoke about some of the silence and neglect that he and Meghan experienced and struggled to adjust to as they settled into palace life, but he also spoke about dealing with the grief of the tragic loss of his mother in 1997. I wish she could have met Meghan. I wish she was around for Archie. Yeah, I have no doubt that my mum would be incredibly proud of me. I'm living the life that she wanted to live for herself, living the life that she wanted us to be able to live. Now, Harry's time speaking in the show took place over a number of different recording sessions. This wasn't just one sit-down interview, but it was a very wide-ranging series of conversations where he addressed his therapy and how he feels his mother would now be extremely proud of him. But I think what many had been talking about this week is, of course, uh, those very real comments about his experiences as a working member of the royal family and a member of the institution of the monarchy. I say the institution because, as we know, that is very separate to the family. But Harry also speaks about the family itself. He says, I thought my family would help, but every single ask, request, warning, whatever it is, just got met with total silence, total neglect. This is, of course, him talking about him and Meghan trying to make their royal roles work. We'd heard from them in the past. They both spoke about that inability to thrive in what was clearly a very toxic environment. It's something I wrote about extensively in Finding Freedom, and we've heard many reports about since. They, of course, spoke very openly about it with their Oprah interview on CBS earlier this year. Harry goes on to say that they spent four years trying to make it work, doing everything that they possibly could, carrying on to do the role, doing the job. But he says Meghan was struggling. Now, of course, this struggle that he talks about is Meghan, aged six months, when she had told him about suicidal thoughts just before the two were due at a charity event at the Royal Albert Hall in London. I'm feeling sorry for her, but I'm also really angry with myself that we're stuck in this situation. I was ashamed that it got this bad. I was ashamed to go to my family. Now, much of what Harry shared in this special was really what we've come to see and know from Harry over the past five years. Of course, it was in 2017 we heard him sit down for Bryony Gordon's podcast. That's the British journalist, author and mental health advocate that they, that the Sussexes have grown very close to. Harry really spoke for the first time back then about some of his own mental health struggles and really discovering therapy for the first time and we're now seeing him at the other side of that so it's been really interesting to have someone so publicly share the journey that they've been on we've also been able to watch him and join him for some of that I think many of these interviews these conversations have been an invitation for us to follow him on that journey and it sends a really powerful message not only to those who may feel ashamed or embarrassed to talk about these things, but also to men where it's even more of a taboo to ever even think about getting help when it comes to your mental health. Harry, of course, went into detail about in his late 20s, starting to question 
really his role as a member of the royal family and and his inability to sort of hide from his demons he talks about drinking taking drugs to numb the pain of course following the death of his mother and something that he had touched on very briefly in the past but not gone into such visceral detail on with the panic attacks and the severe anxiety that followed him throughout a very important time in his life as a working rule. He says from 28 to 32, he called it a nightmare time in his life. As I said, he went on to, to describe drink, taking drugs, willing to try and do, as he says, the things that made him feel less like I was feeling. Now, for many, this was also a time where for us watching, this was how many felt that Harry was at his best as a working member the royal family those solo tours around the world of course where he really found such a strong following and even becoming a favorite member of the royal family for many and i think hearing these stories and the details of what goes on behind the scenes behind palace walls gives us a really alarming insight into just how difficult it is to not only navigate that landscape of surviving in a very unnatural environment that is of course being a member of the royal family but also that incredible ability that many of us have and that harry clearly was a professional at which is putting on a fantastic front you show the world that you're doing absolutely fine i think we've all all been there at times when actually behind the scenes you're having the most difficult experiences of your life now, I don't want to do a disservice to this show by <laughs> spoiling everything that's in it. You've probably read many of the headlines. I would say many of those headlines are quite different to what is actually described and what we get to watch in the show. It's a very special series and I strongly recommend you check it out for yourselves. It is on Apple TV+. Plus. If you don't have a subscription, it is very easy to get a trial. And in fact, I think that's one of the beautiful things about this show being on the platform that it is, is the global reach that it has. This is a platform that is available in the pockets and on the devices for billions around the world. And that's a very powerful way to get a strong message out there. And it's one of the things that Harry and Oprah spoke about when they sat down with Robin Roberts for Good Morning America earlier this week. You may have seen some of the chats on the show, but we have an extended listen to the pair's conversation with Robin. And we finally get to hear what it is that brought both of them together to do this very special series. Oprah, storytelling, it's through people feeling comfortable. And there's something about you, my friend, it's a comfort zone. Why is it so important for people to have this, this forum to be able to share their stories, to know that they're not alone? Well, one of the things that uh, Prince Harry and I wanted was to have people understand that mental wellness, mental fitness is a spectrum and that we're all on the spectrum. In the United States specifically, one out of five people admit to some kind of mental health struggle. So that means that everybody either is or knows somebody who is going through something. So I know that one of the lessons of 25 years of listening to people's stories is that everybody wants to be heard, they want to be seen, they want to know that they matter. The duo detailing their creative process. I will have to say, Harry was in every meeting, he was there, 
usually on Zoom before I was and turning in his notes before I did. And I was like, oh, Harry turned in his notes already. So uh, I, didn't know it was, I didn't know it was a competition. Now that I know, I'm very glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> every time you beat me with the notes, Harry, every time. Well, Oprah and I come from two very, very different uh, worlds. I love in this series because we were talking about, I was talking about my upbringing, you know, being raised in rural Mississippi with an outhouse. And Harry is like, well, I wasn't born with an outhouse. <laughs> I was literally born in a castle. And we were able to find a common bond with our separate stories to share in such a way that allows people to see themselves. Being able to sit down and have an open conversation and to be able to be vulnerable and show the strength in vulnerability and in doing so encourage others to come forward. That's how we're gonna break the stigma. That's how we're gonna change this conversation for good. Once we realize that we are all in this together, if we're gonna hurt, we're gonna hurt together. But if we're gonna heal, we're gonna heal together. We're gonna heal together. Prince Harry, who's been a champion of mental health for several years, opening up about his own journey including the passing of his mother, Princess Diana. You were 12 years old at the time. You didn't process it. That others who didn't even know your mother, we were able to show our grief. And you, because of the position that you were in, were not able to process that part of your life. There are so many people of all ages that need to heal and that also are, for one reason or another, unable to heal or maybe unaware that they need to heal. If we hold on to grief, it manifests itself and and appears later in life. That is what I've learned from this process. The trauma of losing a parent, something Zach Williams, son of the late Robin Williams, also shares in the project. Zach's story is a classic example when what happened with him at his age and what happened to, to me at my age, it's remarkably similar. It was one thing that he said uh, in a follow-up conversation, which was, his service to others has helped heal him. And I think that was a really key moment for Oprah, myself and Zach when we were on a separate call for us to go, wow, this is, it, it, it's true in Oprah, in your, in, your, in your career. It's been true for me in starting the Invictus Games to be able to create something to watch other people heal is part of our own healing process. And I think that compassionate element of that, being able to put ourselves in some, someone else's shoes and being able to somehow be able to help in that healing process is absolutely critical. I think lots of people have been through grief, particularly this year, have lost parents. Some people have lost both parents due to COVID, lost relatives, lost friends, and have not been able to grieve properly. So I think hearing someone like Harry talk about it or hearing other people share how their inability to really um, step into the moment and do the grieving in a way that could be helpful to them at the time allows other people to see themselves. Prince Harry, can you talk a little bit more about how the pandemic has had an effect? I think globally, um, you know, we've, we've now all had a shared experience. We've, we've experienced something similar, albeit in different aspects in different locations around the world. And I think whereas, you know, we were very much in the sort of the fight or flight situation at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was more sort of a physical, it's now the emotional piece. We removed the, the, all the, the craziness and the hecticness and the busyness of, of, of life. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. 
Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome back. Well, of course, you probably haven't missed this, but if you have, the independent inquiry commissioned by the BBC last year to look into how Princess Diana was coerced into giving an interview to BBC's Panorama in 1995 has finally been completed and the findings of that inquiry shared with the world. It goes into detail of how the BBC fell short of the high standards of integrity and transparency over Martin Bashir's interview with Diana and goes into detail about how Bashir had acted in a deceitful way and even faked documents to obtain the interview. Uh, The BBC's own internal probe in 1996, which was just a year after this interview, was also blasted in this report as woefully ineffective. And the BBC have effectively been accused of one of the network's biggest cover-ups of all time. Some government officials saying yesterday that the cover-up for this was far worse than the crime. Now, of course, we heard from Prince William and from Prince Harry, both speaking very openly about their thoughts on the investigation and the findings that have come from it. And I sat down with ABC News Royal producer Zoe McGee and Royal author and correspondent Robert Jobson to talk about some of the findings from this report, but also the reaction from the princes and what this means for the future of this interview. Ultimately, this is Diana's truth that she shared with the world. I personally feel there has perhaps been some effort to discredit some of those things that have been shared by Diana. Of course, these are stories that we know were very true. Uh, She had also shared much of this stuff with Andrew Morton in the biography that he had written that she had contributed to around the same time. So I'm currently sat in the Travellers Club, which Prince Philip was patron of, which I feel is quite... Poignant? Apps. Perhaps apps, yes, that's a better word with it. Who's president of the in and out Oh, let's not have club competition, <laughs> Robert. Uh, with, of course, as you've heard, uh, royal author Robert Jobson and ABC News royal producer Zoe McGee. We have just digested the, I'd say, full contents of the Dyson report, um, which has been the subject of much of... ABC News is uh, scheduled today, including a Nightline special, which we just wrapped on. But I wanted to sort of, now that we've digested everything, I wanted to sort of talk about perhaps what this means moving forwards. Perhaps, Robert, I could start with you. We've obviously heard statements from Harry and William. William presumably speaking more on behalf of the family than just himself, because, of course, we haven't heard anything else from the palace. Does this mean it's sort of them drawing a line under it, or will we hear more from...? Well, I think it was a little bit more than drawing a line under it. I think they'd like it to be the interview to sort of disappear from history. Um, And whilst you've got the Daily Mail and all the tabloids having attacking the BBC in this media pit, it seems to me, almost like an old Viking pit, they're attacking each other, they're standing over it talking about fake news and, and, and pontificating about how things shouldn't have happened and she wouldn't have done this and she would have probably still been alive today. All huge leaps, as far as I can see, whilst they watch the media attack itself again. Um, 
The bottom line is that the Diana interview, however it was attained, and I personally think it was appalling what the BBC did, but we are dealing 25 years ago and you, and you can't change history. They seem to be sort of rewriting history and reinventing the wheel. The bottom line is Diana said what she said, she wanted to say it, and she got it out there and the world listened. And I think we should not really start now talking about fake news. This isn't fake news in any way. And it's not, she wasn't paranoid either. The fact is she was very coherent in what she had to say. And I, I, I'm, you know, I was a journalist at the time. You know, I'd been covering the Royals um, five years or so by, at, at that stage. And this was a bombshell interview that changed history. Yes, the way it was obtained and the way it was covered up was wrong. But what she had to say, she would have said anyway, and she would have said it somewhere whether it was the BBC, whether it was with a newspaper, whether it was with an American um, chat show host, maybe even maybe Oprah or ABC News or wherever. You know, she would have had that voice, would have come out. And so I think that they're taking... The palace are sort of... Or the royals are sort of slightly disingenuous in the way they're trying to rewrite the narrative. And, you know, and for William, a future, future king, to start telling what should be repeated, what shouldn't be repeated, I find that slightly... Unhealthy. Um, we live in a you know democratic society. This is a historic interview, and I don't think anyone can start putting the uh, it all back in the box. Back in the box. We heard in William's statement him talking about how the interview had sort of effectively established a false narrative, um, which he says for over a quarter of a century has been commercialised by the BBC and others. That latter part, I would say, is accurate. But this sort of reference to it being now being a false narrative, do you think that that sort of endangers the truth left behind by Diana, which, of course, was also shared in the Andrew Morton biography, in the tapes that we've subsequently heard in various documentaries over the years? Do you think that that perhaps puts that now at risk? Well, I mean, it's easy for him to say it was a false narrative. I don't believe it was a false narrative. You listen to things like... Diana, in her, her own words, you, you read the Morton book. You know, I think that Diana probably looks back at uh, a panorama and did do afterwards. Maybe she looked back at it and thought, maybe I was wrong at that time, maybe I was... But it was her truth at that time. It's what she wanted to, to say at that time. Yes, it did lead to um, the Queen acting and saying the divorce had to happen, but let's be honest, the fact that both of them were sleeping, Charles and Diana, with other people, meant that this, this marriage was going to end in divorce anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't carry on a... A, a, an adulterous marriage with both parties cheating on each other and expect this marriage to last. And I think it's ludicrous to suggest in any other way that, you know, for some reason, Panorama changed the whole thing. No, Panorama was a pivot at a moment in time. It certainly didn't, it didn't cause the end of the marriage. Mm. What caused the end of the marriage was the infidelity, cheating and lies that both parties took, took part in. But when, when William said that, isn't he echoing his uncle Charles Spencer's words? Because Charles Spencer believes, and he said in the panorama last night, that the deception by Bashir led to a chain of events that led to Diana's death. Now, within that, he says that Bashir painted so many people who were close to Diana as untrustworthy that it slightly messed with her mind. And I think maybe that's what William meant about a false narrative because she had been fed all these lies, which, which in turn led her to say certain things in that interview, which maybe she wouldn't have said if she, didn't, if she hadn't believed the picture that Bashir had placed of her, of people spying on her, of... Uh, I mean, all the lies that Spencer said that Bashir told her. 
Yeah, William's statement talked about how the the special, the the interview, had contributed to Diana's paranoia. But we've also seen a sort of personal handwritten letter from Diana to Martin Bashir, where she talks about how a lot of the information that was presented to her in the run-up to this interview were things that she already knew, which sort of goes against perhaps some of the stuff that we're now dealing with today. We're almost canonising Diana as this innocent child. Diana was a smart cookie when it came to the media world. She, she, she worked alongside people like Richard Kay and, and other... But she knew what she was doing when she was playing with fire with the Daily Mail and Andrew Morton. I mean, I was around at the time. Diana was not some innocent person. Diana knew exactly how to play the media and she knew exactly how to act within it. And she knew also that the establishment was against her, trying to present her as somewhat mentally ill. Are we not experiencing that again, you know, at the moment with, with Harry, you know, and, and the way that he is, claims he's being silenced or people have tried to not allow him to give his narrative? Well, this was her narrative. And, I, 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 you know, I've got nothing... I remember being working with the Daily Express at the time, and actually we were fairly supportive of, of the Prince of Wales in the way we were, we, we were doing things. But the fact was, I can't sit here as a journalist of 30 years covering this story and feel slightly aggrieved that her own son is using the word paranoia. Paranoia was used by old, what they used to call him, fatty Soames. I don't know you can say that anymore, but um, Churchill's uh, grandson, who basically labelled Diana as paranoid. And it f- infuriated her. She, she said, I'm not mentally ill. I may have issues. And a lot of women would have issues if their husband had been committing adultery for years on end with a mistress that wouldn't go away. To, and she had to live within that lie. I'm not, I, don't, I wonder how many men, women or whoever in a relationship would have been able to sustain that without actually wanting to explode with rage. Mm. Now, she, I think, was a, it was a human... It was, it was a, it was a, someone who absolutely felt aggrieved at what had gone on, and she wanted her truth to come out. It may... You know, we always... People, when they're talking about themselves, tend to dress things up, and she said there were three in the marriage. Of course, there were more than that, because she had affairs with Hewitt and Oliver Hoare and, and various other people. The fact is... But I still think, actually, in terms of love... She probably still loved the Prince of Wales as her husband, and she felt totally aggrieved that Camilla wouldn't go away. And I remember in a in a uh, instant I wrote in a book that I, I wrote about with Diana Closely Guarded Secret when she approached Camilla and Charles about this uh, the uh, a party in Ham, and she said, "Look, don't think I'm stupid. I know what's going on." And Camilla's response was something along the lines, "You've got the children. What's your problem?" I think if people actually get inside of that Mm. you can understand the rage that diana was feeling because of course that couldn't become public that couldn't be public and she as a married woman with two small children was trapped in an unhappy marriage and you know i feel also for the prince of Wales because you know you know he deeply regretted i think ever marrying diana actually i think he felt not forced into it by his father and mother as the narrative goes but by the media at the time, the, the newspapers were much more powerful then. And the narrative was, he's got to get married now, now, now. And he felt obliged to do it, particularly when she was being um, approached by the paparazzi at the time. So there's a lot of sadness mm. in this marriage. But I don't think we should be fooled into believing the new narrative that Diana, this poor innocent child who was duped by this nasty little man, Mr Martin Bashir, with his lies, and then he was taken on this journey and she had no idea what was going on. Nonsense. She, she would have actually done that interview, maybe not with the BBC, 
but she would have done an interview. And yeah. Dyson himself comes to that conclusion in the report and in the introduction he actually says that that was one of the things that struck him throughout the investigation is that he believed Diana would have spoken but she may not have spoken to Bashir. Do you find it interesting, we've obviously heard from both Princes William and Harry, one might expect that we would hear from Prince Charles on such a thing given that Diana was his former wife and it was a situation that affected him greatly do you think it's unusual that we haven't heard from Clarence House? Could we expect to hear anything from them? I don't think it's unusual. I mean, we haven't heard from Clarence House and we haven't heard from Buckingham Palace either. Both were involved in this interview and both uh, have had to deal with the fallout from it. I think, I mean, what can they say? They are still following the never explain mantra. So mm. I think a statement from either would be would be awkward, frankly. But what I do think and what I do feel for is the Queen. I mean, just think of the last few months that she's had. She's had, she just lost her husband, she's had the Oprah interview, the allegations of racism within the royal family, and and now this. Mm. What what in the report, the report is extensive, and it's been, it's taken, I think all of us can agree that it's taken a while to get through it all. Was, it, was there anything within it for either of you that surprised you? A lot of people talking about the cover-up being worse than the crime. You said that earlier. Personally, I, I think that the cover-up was was bad. I think the, the crime itself, you know, you've got, to look, you've got to start putting yourself in context of what was going on uh, 25 years ago. It was a very different um, theatre in the, in, in, the, in the industry. I think that a lot of, uh, there were a lot of practices going on in the tabloid media that wouldn't be acceptable now and wouldn't happen now, despite what Prince Harry seems to think. I think he's lost a little bit in the past. The, the Leveson inquiry has dealt with a lot of issues and I think a lot of the media has been, has been cleared up. But the crime here really was the cover-up by the very senior people at the, at the, at the um, BBC that should have known better and were really, you know, not being forthcoming with information that was being asked for and, mm. and in that respect, that, that, was, that was wrong. But Dinah herself, I can almost hear her in my ear when people start talking about, you know... Her, the, you know, paranoia and mentally, I could hear her sort of almost, you know, enraged that that she's being silenced and that she was that stupid as to think that she didn't know what was going on. What she wanted, in a way, was a quite tricky team of journalists to get into Kensington Palace to deceive not only her bodyguard but her protect her protection, so they didn't know what was going on. But her private that was got, they were you know they were gone at that stage. The the private secretary who had to resign over it didn't know anything about it her press secretary jeff crawford who's now dead he didn't know anything about it she had to make sure no one knew about it so in a way she had to handpick some people that could be deceitful could work with her mm. to get this out because actually i'm absolutely certain that the powers if they'd known about it in the, the, the establishment would have done their very very best to have stopped this interview by leaning on the BBC. Yeah. And they would have said something to them. And, they, and I, I would have thought the powers that would be, one nod from the Queen saying this is not going to go out, I suspect that it probably wouldn't have got out. And that's why it had to be very secret. That reminds me of Oprah's question to Meghan in the, in the interview earlier this year, which is, well, were you silent or were you silenced? And, of course, this was a couple that was unable to share their truth until they had truly stepped away from their royal roles, and so I can understand the 
the sort of dance that would have been required to pull off. Well, people were talking of deceit, you know, but there was deceit on Diana's part too. She was looking for a somewhat deceitful crew or deceitful journalists to work with, as she did with Andrew Morton to get the tapes into her via uh, Dr Coldhurst. You know, she she knew that it was... if she was, And it wasn't to do with the fact that she thought she was bugged. Yes, she did think she was bugged. In all honesty, she probably was. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is the reality of what was going on at that time. You know, that, you know that we've got to remember those, those tape recordings... Of uh, that took part, you know, of her conversations with, with you know, with with her with her friends that they were recorded, the squidgy tapes they were recorded, so you know she there were, it was clear evidence yeah. that things were going on behind the scenes that were not really very fair on her, and so I do think that to paint Diana as this naive creature is wrong, Diana knew the media and she knew what she was up against, but she also knew the power of the establishment. Mm. And she knew she had to be clever to get her story across. I want to bring it back up to today, the statements that we saw from the brothers. Williams came alongside a video statement, which was, I would say, a rare moment for him. We're so used to being sent those electronic releases from the palace and that's really as far as it goes. But William went as far as recording his own outside of Kensington Palace, I think it gave us an insight into how angry he was. But again, it, it, it almost sort of showed the difference between his approach to it and Harry's. There were small things I noticed. William referring to Diana as my mother and Harry referring to her as our mother. Zoe, you asked me this earlier for the Nightline special, I wondered what you guys thought. Do you think that this is the first time that we're seeing the brothers on slightly different pages in terms of how they're remembering their mother's life and her story? Well, this whole this whole um, report and investigation was actually the first time that we saw them issue separate statements. When it first came out, William came out with it as you said, a paper statement saying that he welcomed the investigation and he hoped that we get to the truth. Harry wasn't quite so forthcoming. He he acknowledged, I think, circuitously that he was following it. And today, or rather last night, when William came out with his, his on-camera statement and Harry came out with his written statement, you could see the very, very different personalities and the very, very different reactions to this. And it made me see that... The, they're both trying to hold on and honour their mother, but they're going to do it in different ways. And the, the relative roles that they have, as you said, William spoke as a future king and Harry spoke as a, as a son. Mm. And he is, he is trying to carve out his own way outside of the royal family. So he didn't want to give that traditional royal family response. It was much more emotional and it was much more personal, that I thought, than William's, which did speak within the establishment. This talking about the interview again as a reminder of the sort of suffering that Diana had as a member of the royal family. It then is quite interesting that in a month's time or just over a month's time, we'll be at Kensington Palace to see the royal family remember her life with this commemorative statue for what would be her 60th birthday. Do we think that the events this week has any change on that or how we see that or perceive that? Well, I mean, I suppose there is some common ground 
in the statements, although there are differences and notable differences, that, that this may actually, their indignation at the BBC may in some way bring them all together because, frankly, the feuding has got to stop at some stage and the blaming and the finger-pointing. Um, and I would hope that any sons, whoever they are, um, royal or not, could have the decency to come together to pay tribute to their mother. Um, you know, they lost at a very early age, uh, tragically, and um, pay their respects thoughtfully and with, with, with honour. I think to continue this feuding is both pointless and upsetting for everybody. I don't think it's doing our royal family any good in its brand abroad. And, it's, and I do believe that at some stage you've got to sit down and talk. So why not sit down and talk uh, after the unveiling of a statue of someone who did so much good for so many people around the world? That was, of course, myself, uh, ABC News royal producer Zoe McGee and royal author Robert Jobson. Uh, apologies for any of the audio issues throughout that. We were recording it just as the crew were packing away. Sometimes you have to get these things done in the only time that you have. Now, of course, the show will be back at its regular slot of Friday next week with continued reaction to the findings of this investigation and also Harry's docuseries, which the world are still sitting down to watch as we speak. Prince William and the Cambridges will also be in Scotland. William arrived there last night. He is due to give a speech any minute now. I hear some of that will touch on his relationship with his mother and his experiences in Scotland after finding out about her death. So it'll be very interesting to hear those words from him after the statement that he had given following the Dyson report, which uh, almost questioned some of the narrative shared by his mother um, at a particularly difficult time in her life. I'd love to also hear your thoughts on some of this. So do send me a tweet. You can just find me at SCOBY on Twitter. Use the hashtag TheAirPod. Thanks again, as always, for tuning in. If you haven't subscribed, please make sure to do that now. And do feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you join the show on. Your feedback is always appreciated. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves and each other. Stay safe, and I'll see you then.